don't know if you, uh, you know, I've had some places where you've ever been where you're like, man, it just feels like heaven on earth. It just has that feel. Uh, for me, as I think about that, probably, you know, and I've talked about it many times, like we love, my family, we love going up to Door County and we love the, the, the bay. Um, this week, our plan is we're not going to Door County, but we are planning to take a couple of days to kind of take a little break. It's been quite a busy stretch and we're going to go up by like Monaco and stuff and just where it's quiet by the lake. And last year when we were there, it was like 90 degrees and we were in the water all the time. This year, like they just had a frost warning. Like it's just so weird. Like we were going like the exact same week as last year, you know, but weather, Wisconsin weather, it's just, either way, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. So it's going to feel like a little taste of heaven on earth. I'm curious, like what are, what are some spots maybe that you've been that kind of feel that way? I'm just curious. Yeah. Like up in the mountains of Montana. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Fly fishing in in Alaska. Sultry Cove, Alaska. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Anybody else? I guess I'm curious, like what, what makes it, what gives it that taste? What do you, what gives it that feel where you feel that way? Got Got any ideas? Just. So good memories you've had there. Okay. How about you? Yeah. Just the peace and awe of creation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of what I love too about like the, like the still clear, like, so our campsite's on like a lake called Crystal Lake and it's just crystal clear and you just can hang out and watch the loon go underwater here and then like appear over here. And it's just, it's just good. Yeah. You know, but the great thing about our lesson today is that we don't have to go one of these places or to Montana or a, Alaska to get a little taste of heaven. Our lesson today actually shows us that we can get a little taste of heaven now because of an event known as Pentecost. Now this event, and, and, and for Christians, typically we think right away of, of God coming in, in, in the flames of, of the tongues of fire and, and being on people's heads there. But actually this event is rooted far above or far before that whole thing happened. See, this day, we typically call it Pentecost. People who come from a Jewish background would call it Shavuot because this feast actually originates, it's one of the Old Testament Jewish feasts. The word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. The word Shavuot is a Hebrew word that means weeks. Now you might go, well, why, why the two? Well, because it's seven weeks. It marks the end of seven weeks, and after seven weeks, which would be 49 days, on day 50, you celebrate this event. So that's why it's known as Pentecost, but in the Greek, because day 50, also known as Shabbat, because that's the Hebrew word for weeks, and if we were to just translate it to, to English, we would just call it then the Feast of Weeks. And for us to really see the beauty of this day, and to really see how we get to have a little glimpse, a little taste of heaven. It'll be helpful for us to go back and trace these Old Testament roots. And when we do, we can see how we get to have a little heaven on earth. The lesson we have, it's Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 to 21. It says, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. 
Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without, without defect, one bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priests. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Now, in that first reading through, you might go, what's the deal with all these sacrifices and all these different things? This morning, we're not going to get into all the details of it. We're not going to do our typical where we really work through like, like each word, verse by verse. We're going to talk more about this, this practice, this feast as a whole. We'll get into the sacrifices some um, because there really is some beautiful benefit to them, but we won't work through too many of those details there. We can do that another time. Uh, but what we should probably do first is just do a quick review of what this book of Leviticus is even all about. Why do we have this book with all of these unique things? of Leviticus. We know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us. So he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which like the sun is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. 
The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. And here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in. Right, at any so we moment. cut the video off there because they really work through all the details of it. And it's a lot of good stuff, but it just it's a lot of info that I don't, we don't need to overwhelm our brains with right now. We can kind of go back and focus just on our, our, our sermon lesson itself. Our sermon lesson itself comes from the part talking about the festivals. The main part that we, main details that they cover that are good for us to keep in our mind from what we just watched is the fact that God originally created people to be in his presence. That God created us to be in, in relationship with him, to be in partnership with him, and to live life with him. Now, Adam and Eve turned away from God, started doing things their own way, so they broke God's creation, and as a result then broke that relationship with God, so they fell away from that. And now our lesson is, is, is part of God's journey of how he is restoring that, how he has created the nation of Israel and how he is now establishing a way for them to have this relationship, this partnership with him. They have all the sacrifices, all the priestly duties and so on. But again, our lesson today comes from the section where he is talking about the festivals. How do they, as God's people, celebrate God, worship God, embrace what it is that God has done and is doing through them? And as we take a look at this festival today, we can see just how God gives us that taste of heaven and earth. The festival we have today, it begins, we're told that from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, we're told that they were to count off seven full weeks. This offering of this festival today is actually, it's the bookend of a festival that they would have celebrated, well, seven weeks ago. So what we have here is we actually have two festivals that are really marking the beginning and end of a harvest season. So at the beginning of it, you have the harvest of the grain. Uh, so you would have it, Sean Blake, harvest or barley first? I'm, I gotta be full disclosure, I'm blinking which one came first. They've got two seasons that come about the same time. Um, so I don't, because I, I don't want you to go research this and say that pastor had it wrong. I don't remember for sure which one it is. One of them, it's barley and wheat. One of them starts a little earlier than the other. So what they have is the Feast of First Fruits, which marks the beginning of the one. And then the Feast of Weeks marks the end of the second. So between the two, typically harvest covers about seven weeks. And so this is really, it's, it's a harvest festival initially, celebrating that God's people would get to harvest the crops that God had brought before them. But as we think about this harvest festival, it's not just, okay, you should give thanks to God because now you have, you know, wheat, now you have barley. He tells them specifically to bring before him loaves that have been baked with yeast. Now for us as people living in America, bread baked with yeast doesn't seem unusual. But if you go through the festivals of God, it is actually very unusual. Typically, he has them use unleavened bread, or we might think of flat bread. And especially the Feast of Passover, we think about him telling the people to use flatbread because the Passover feast, so remember the Passover is, is, is rooted in when they were in Egypt and they had to sacrifice the Passover lamb so that the, the angel of death would pass over their house and then they were free to leave Egypt. And part of the Passover celebration was that, that because that happened and then they were told to leave, they would have to leave quickly. 
And so there wasn't time to allow the bread to rise because they were on the go to try to leave Egypt. So that's the whole significance of the unleavened bread with the Passover. The contrast here is that now they can have bread with yeast. They're not on the go anymore. And actually, if you look at the verses that come before our sermon lesson, then these verses are speaking specifically to that first fruits feast, kind of the front end of the bookend. He says, this is a feast that happens when you enter the land I'm going to give you. So in other words, this feast isn't just, okay, now you've got crops, but now you have settled in to the promised land. You have arrived where I promised I would bring you. Now you can sit down and bake bread, let it rise, and enjoy the beginnings of the blessings that I promised to give you. This feast is a celebration that they're not on the go anymore. They're not, it's the other, the Passover was a feast where they celebrated that God delivered them, but now this is a feast where they can kind of stop and rest and enjoy that God came through on his promise, where they can get a little taste begin to receive and appreciate the promised land given to them and get a little, little taste of heaven on earth. But there's something else that this festival became to be known for over time. Initially, it was that thing about the harvest. We think about them settling into the promised land. This feast, the counting off of the 50 days, is, corresponds very closely with the timing of when God, after the Passover, when he brings the people out and he gives them the law. And so actually, over time, over time, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost, became very much connected with a celebration of God giving the covenant at Mount Sinai through Moses. Of God giving that covenant law, that, 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 where we have the Ten Commandments, but all these other laws as well. Actually, the laws that our lesson comes from today, God gave them there at Mount Sinai. The Feast of Pentecost became a time where people remembered how God was on the mountain in fire, and Moses went up there and came back down with the tablets of the covenant. Each year when God's people came together, they would remember this event, God giving that covenant to them. Now, I've been purposely using the word covenant more than have been using the word law, because often as we look back at God's law, and especially in, in the Lutheran church, one of the things that is as, a, as an emphasis, which is a great emphasis, is we'll talk about law and gospel, um, because we, we really want to differentiate between the two, but sometimes we emphasize it so much that God's law kind of gets a bad rap, meaning that we always think of God's law like, okay, God's law is what shows me my sin. God's law is bad. Well, actually, God's law is good when you follow it, God's law is a beautiful, wonderful thing. When God gave the covenant to Israel, the, he, he, he laid it before them and said, okay, this is how we can partner together and you can be my people and I can be your God. This is how you can live set apart from the nations. This is a good thing. God's law is only bad when sinful people break it, which is what sinful people do, unfortunately. But the idea originally, and kind of God laying it out before them is this is your opportunity to really be my people. I want to partner with you and live with you. I want you to be my set-apart nation. When you look through verses 15 to 20 uh, here, excuse me, starting at, uh, would be a starting at verse 18, there's all these details we've got where there's to sacrifice seven male lambs, there are to sacrifice a bull, and two rams. These sacrifices are sacrifices that are known as burnt offerings, where you burn that whole thing up. 
And the significance of burnt offerings is that you don't, it's not that you, some offerings you take and one part goes here, a part goes over there. This whole thing is offered before the Lord. So the idea is that you're coming before God and saying, yes, Lord, all of this, all of my life, all of me is offered before you. God brought the people into the land, gave them the covenant, gave them an opportunity to partner with him and to have their whole lives dedicated to him. And this feast is a celebration of that. It's a celebration that God has brought them into that promised land and God has given them this relationship and that God now gives them the opportunity to have their whole lives dedicated to him. Now, when you think about having our whole lives dedicated to him, when you think about God's people having their whole lives dedicated to him, there is that truth, and I mentioned the law versus gospel contrast. God's law is good, but ultimately, what does God's law do for all of us as well? It does show us our sin, too. It shows us how to live, partner with God, but also it shows us where we fall short. And the same thing happened with God's people, too. There are all these ways they could live with their life fully dedicated to God, and God's people again and again didn't do it. And you and I, this is maybe at one point in this lesson where we can most easily relate to God's people. Because a lot of what they're experiencing so far maybe doesn't seem very relatable to us. Like we've never been on Mount Sinai with this like fire and thunder on top. We were never brought out of Egypt and walked through a Red Sea. You know, we didn't have 10, like 10, you know, these tablets in front of us. But here's one thing that we do have very, very much in common is we do know how God has laid down in front of us what we can, how we can live and partner with him, and we don't do it. It's a very relatable point. God has given us the opportunity to partner with him and really be his people and be his light in this world, and for all honest, we all break that time and time again. And I don't know if you're like me, I just become more and more painfully aware of it all the time, which is why it's so good and so comforting that even here, right in this feast, God provides a solution for that. So one of the offerings he would have them bring before, bring before him is a sin offering. He also designated that there would be this offering where you would bring a goat and sacrifice this offering for sin. He knew the people would sin. He knew that was a problem. He knew that we would sin, and so he provided a sacrifice for it. And this Old Testament sacrifice of this goat ultimately pointed ahead to the greatest sacrifice of his son. This whole system points ahead to Jesus, where God himself himself, would become human, live the life we were all meant to live but don't, so then he could take our place. So he could lay his life down, pay the price for all of our sins, take all that justice that our sins deserve, And so then in exchange, his perfect life could cover us so we could be right with God, so we could have life with God. That sin offering from the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus, the ultimate sin offering, who has died for you so that every way that you have turned away from God is forgiven, it's paid for as far as God's concerned, it is gone, and you are covered and clean in his sight. So you can have the hope of eternity with him and So you can also embrace, even now, heaven on earth. You, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can taste this heaven on earth because of that sacrifice. You can embrace life with God. 
the last few verses of our lesson, they, they really bring that out because look at the next sacrifice. This is then sacrifice one male goat for sin offering. So we had that. But then it goes on to say two lambs, each a year old for a fellowship offering. The next sacrifice is meant to be a celebration that you have a relationship. You have fellowship with God. And that's actually, and I've been doing this movement some here. So uh, you've seen, we've seen a few times we're talking about a wave offering. So there, there's this offering. There were some things you would burn up and so on, but other things you would bring before God and you would just, you would wave it back and forth. And it seems that the significance was really showing that there is a mutual relationship going on here. You are sharing this with God. You are partnering with God. And so they were to bring the lambs and wave them before God. They were to bring the bread of the first fruits and wave it before God and celebrate that there is a relationship, a fellowship, a partnership that has been restored with God. It's not just that there's something here that is paid for sin. There's also a restoration of relationship between God and his people. And such a restoration of relationship that our lesson goes on, to, goes on to say that on that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Another word for sacred would be holy, a holy assembly. When God's people come together, it is a holy gathering. In the Old Testament, when God's people came together, it was a gathering of holy people, people who have been cleansed, people who have been set apart by God. Just like it is for us today, when we come together as a gathering of God's people, it is a coming together of holiness because we are people who have been set apart by Christ and brought to faith in him. It is a holy, a sacred assembly. And in this one, it was to be a, 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 an assembly where there's no regular work done. So a time for God's people to rest and really to just celebrate what God has done for them. To just receive, to just take in what God has, has done for them. Which, by the way, this is just a little sidebar. I wasn't even planning to go here, but I just feel like it may be something good to share. Is I've been spending a lot of time the last few months pondering Sabbath and really what it's about, partly because we've been really busy and I've realized, like, I used to kind of be like, okay, in a few weeks when life slows down, then I'll rest. And you know what? It's been months and life doesn't slow down, <laughs> right? So I'm like, I better figure out how to rest in the meantime. And I think that's one of the things God is teaching me. And I'm learning a lot about Sabbath. And I think Sabbath is really the transition on that day between focusing on what I need to do and focusing on what is done what God has done, and what God has promised is as good as done. I think that's what Sabbath very much is about. It's, I, I, I stop focusing on what I need to do, and I can focus on what God has done, and what God promised will be done. And this gathering is a coming together where there's no regular work. You just, you just focus on what is done, what God has done for his people, and what God promises will be done on behalf of his people. This is something they were to do in the Old Testament, but also this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. So now this is where it starts to lead into what we as Christians typically think about when we think about Pentecost. Before we talk about the tongues of fire above their heads, we should probably recognize there is a reason why Jerusalem was packed full of people from every area around. And the reason was they were there to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. They were there because of Shavuot. They were there because of Pentecost. So this is a long Old Testament festival that the people were there celebrating and God chose that day to have the Holy Spirit come upon his people in tongues of fire. And so the question then is, why? 
You know, because God didn't just like, oh, you know what, that's right, I guess it is Shabbat today. Well, what a day that I picked for this, fun. Like, God is very deliberate, right? So what can we see? What does the Old Testament Feast of Shabbat of weeks teach us about how we should think about Pentecost? Where do we see connections between the two? How does it help us experience a taste of heaven on earth? Well, think one for in Jesus' day, it was very common to think on Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law, right? And think about the scene of the giving of the law. God appears on top of the mountain in what? Thunder and fire and lightning, right? And that's not, not the first time. It's not the only time we see fire associated with God in the Old Testament. When Moses first is, God calls Moses, God appears to him in a bush that is what? It's burning, right? It's on fire. And when God leads the people uh, of Israel, he leads them during the day with a pillar of cloud and then at night with a pillar of fire. The fire is a very clear indicator of the presence of God. And so on a day where people are reviewing the event of God being there with his people in that way, what comes upon people's heads? Fire and flame. The presence of God. It's a very clear indicator that that day, in a new way, the presence of God was coming upon people. In the Old Testament, when we think about the giving of the law, God came and his, his, his presence was there as he gave them the, the, the original covenant. In the New Testament, it's the presence of God giving a, or really bringing home and, and, and resting in God's people according to the new covenant. Because remember Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, you know, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. He instituted a new covenant. The old covenant, you think about the law and God's people trying to follow it. The new covenant is that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. That Jesus lived the perfect life for us, died to pay for our sins and rise again to give us, to give a new life to us. The new covenant is that we have partnership with God and get to live this life with God completely based on the Messiah who has come and what he has done. So right away, just thinking about the fire there on their heads, we can see that connection of what this means as it comes in its fulfillment there on that day of Pentecost. But also, when we remember that the Feast of Pentecost originated as a feast of harvest, it can also fill out for us how we think about the gift of Pentecost in the New Testament as well. Remember, so there's this harvest feast in the Old Testament where then you get bread and you get to begin to experience the results of the harvest, right? In the New Testament, you go to the book of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul talks about us being the first fruits, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon the people on Pentecost, it was showing that the harvest was happening. When the Holy Spirit works in God's people, God's people are beginning to rest and enjoy the fruits of what God has done for them. When the Holy Spirit works in us, you're actually beginning to, to reap the benefits of the harvest of what God has promised you. And you think about the Holy Spirit working in us, this, this is where then you think about reaping the, the, the benefits of the harvest. This is where that tasting of heaven comes in. When the Holy Spirit works in you, it's just, like, it's just like the people of the Old Testament when they sat down and ate the bread of the promised land, the bread that was promised. When the Spirit works in you, you're eating the bread of God that he promised you. You're tasting heaven. 
And you might think, but how am I, ta- like when the spear works in me, how am I tasting heaven? Keep in mind, remember what, what heaven is ultimately about. Remember what the hope of God is ultimately about. Sometimes we think we can get this picture, well, heaven is where I just go and I, and I sit at the lake and I relax, and that's the center of it. Or I go fly fishing, and maybe we do do that in heaven. I don't know, but it's not the center of it. The center of it is having restored to us what was lost in the garden. The center of our hope is the truth that we can be in God's presence once again. That we can be with the perfect holy God who is the source of everything good. The, the, the center of our, our, of our hope is that at some point, this broken world as we know it comes to an end and Jesus is going to return and there's going to be resurrection and we're going to finally have life from him the way it was meant to be. And we're going to partner with God and we're going to love God and we're going to love each other the way God would have us love it. And all of these things, what God originally created this creation to have, we are looking forward to a new creation where we carry out that mission and that vocation where we just get to live with God and love each other. So if that's the hope of eternity, if that's what heaven is really all about, that's what we're, we're looking forward to, then we can begin to see how the Spirit gives us those first fruits now. Because if we're looking forward to life from God, and if faith, if having faith in Jesus means that we've been given life from God, faith is a taste of heaven. And if what we're looking forward to is having a renewed partnership with God, when we live to God, with God today and we partner with God and we carry out God's plan, we are getting a taste of heaven. If heaven is, in, is being in the presence of the Lord forever and if the presence of God is here with us now, that means we are getting a taste of heaven. Right here and right now, Pentecost is signifying that we can taste and have an experience of heaven on earth that we can begin to taste what it is that we are looking for as we live in expectation of it. And as we taste it, just like with the Old Testament Feast of Pentecost, Old Testament Feast of Weeks, God wants this to be something where we don't just taste it a bit on Sunday mornings. We don't just taste it when we get the Lord's Supper a couple times a month. This is something like with that Old Testament Feast, it was meant to consume their whole lives, right? They had those burnt offerings. This, this, my, our whole life gets to be consumed by God. Same thing. God wants us to experience those bits of heaven through every aspect of our lives. It's one of those things, when, and, and Barb, you and I, we were talking before church about all those laws in Leviticus, right? It doesn't it seem like they have a law for everything? Now, thank God we don't have a law for all these different things, but that Old Testament law does help show us that God, is, God intends to transform every area of our lives. There's not like an area that's left untouched in the Old Testament. The same thing, there is not an area of our lives that is left untouched by the Holy Spirit. Every part of our lives is to be transformed. Which, as we think about every part of our lives being transformed again, can make us go, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of parts, many parts of my life. I'm here on Sunday, but by Sunday night, sometimes it's a lot different. There's a lot of parts of my life that aren't touched, or at least I don't see transformed yet by God. But again, that's where we then go and can remind ourselves of that sin offering that God provided. That we are forgiven, that we have life with God. And that we can really embrace the rest and goodness that God has for us. There's one more Old Testament little, little connection with Pentecost just want to highlight and bring out to really kind of put an emphasis or an exclamation point on this. Is if you move ahead, so our lesson is from chapter 23 of Leviticus. You move ahead to chapter 25 and you see the number 50 come up again. Now the number 50 isn't used nearly as often in scripture as other numbers. You see seven, you see 40, 50, 
is a bit more unique. When you move forward to chapter 25, though, you see the number 50, and you see it really laid out in a very similar way. Clearly, it's a very similar thought process. And here, the number 50 is connected with something called the year of jubilee. So every seven years, people were to let the land rest and so on and, and, and take a break. There would be things that would be forgiven. But the 50th year, especially, was to be this year where liberty is proclaimed throughout the land, where people celebrate, and each person returns to their family. It's a time for people to be forgiven, for people to receive things that they had lost, and for people to go back and reconnect and to simply celebrate what God has done. That's what the, the, the 50th year is all about. And if the 50th year is all about that, and if all the phrasing and everything seems basically exactly the same, sure seems that the 50th day is also about that as well. Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, is an opportunity to, to, to experience God's Spirit, which is a foretaste. The Spirit is the first fruit of eternity with God. And when you experience the Spirit, when the Spirit works faith in your heart, you're actually tasting a bit of heaven. When the Spirit works faith, when, when anytime the Spirit assures you that you are forgiven, heaven is here on earth working in you. Anytime you experience the assurance that you have a hope beyond this world, that the, the heaven is here working in you. Anytime you sing a song and praise the Lord and worship him, heaven is working in you. Anytime you participate with other Christians and you, you pray together and you serve each other and you serve your community, heaven is working in you. Anytime the Spirit moves in God's people, what is happening is a reunion of God and his children of God and his creation. And you are experiencing tastes of what's to come. You are experiencing heaven on earth. Happy Pentecost. <laughs>